Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Okay, recording has started. Hello. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 63 of Bilge Pumps. Now, we're not quite sure what's happened to Jamie. We think he's probably busy or something because it is about 10, 10, 10, 30, where he is maybe even 11 o'clock at night. However, we are joined with people. For, we were trying to coordinate something across about five different time zones. Because we are joined by me, Alex Clark. We are joined by Drakinafel. We are joined by Trent Palenko, who's in Texas. So... The fact he hasn't got 146 guns in his house is quite surprising. Mm-hmm. And Salvatore Michelangelo, who likes to come along and occasionally ramble with us. And so what we're calling today's episode is rambling, a bilge pumps rambling with Trent and Sal, because frankly, that makes more sense than any other title I could try and put it on. So, gents, please introduce yourselves for us, any listeners who haven't heard us before. All right. I am a uh, retired defense, Department of Defense quality auditor, staff specialist, and team lead. Uh, I have also spent the last five years as the head of the Section 22 Special Interest Group uh, investigating the electronic warfare uh, shenanigans of MacArthur's uh, theater in World War II. Uh, I'm Sal McCoglano. I am uh, the chair of the History, Political Science, and Criminal Justice Department at Campbell University, a former merchant mariner. And uh, my field of interest is the role of the merchant marine in uh, national defense. And and I run a a YouTube channel that pales in comparison to Alex and Drac in terms of uh, uh, global shipping. We all pale in comparison to Drac. We all do. We we all are humbled by Drac. uh, For for some bizarre reason, people seem to like listening to me. I still haven't figured it out yet. Uh, I think it's the it's, voice, but uh, uh, it's, I it's soothing, said. Drac. It's very soothing. It really is. You are feeling very sleepy. Although at the moment, I have to say on the YouTube subject, and I, I'm going to be naughty on Bill Trump because I probably shouldn't be saying this, but anyone who's watched my channel will know that currently I am running a small, a small bet with my aunt in that if I get to 13,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel by December the 31st, 2021. She and my uncle will take a photo of them both wearing Blackburn Blackburn face masks, which they can get from this, which I've sort of put out on our spreadsheet store, which I've set up entirely because Drac has been nagging me to do it and to actually do things properly for a while. So it's set up and it's running. Is this um, this the same um, aunt you had the bet with when you were trying to get to a thousand uh, subscribers? Because I remember that bet. I remember being part of that group and getting you over that thousand. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so now she's done. She's done this one. She's gone. You'll never get to that. You'll never get to that. (laughs) And so she will never have to wear Blackburn Blackburn face masks. But basically, she saw them on the channel, and I, I said, oh, you, know, you could buy some. She said, I would only wear those if you got to 13,000 subscribers. And I went, fine. Well, actually, no, she said, you have to double your subscribers for me to wear those. I went, that's about 13,000. That's fine. That's what I'll take. You have wow. such a grin on your face right now. Yeah, I know. There's, no, there's virtually no chance of me doing it. But hey-ho, I'm going to keep going and plug it. Anyway, 
that's not today's topics, though, because today's topics, we have so many. It started off with Trent and Sal having a nice conversation on Twitter and us basically barging in and going, ooh, we might look at this. Fancy joining us. And there's all sorts of other things going on um, with the Chinese and various other things going on. And really, it all comes down to, and I would say this is, I hope this is the sort of starting point rambling, is do we believe the Chinese on all their claims? And do we think that actually of their capabilities, the West is actually taking an accurate assessment of what their claims are? And I'll say this from my own perspective. My own perspective often is whenever I see the Chinese talking about their future stuff, I always have a slight suspicion they're probably over-egging it because that's what you do. When they're talking about their current stuff, I sometimes feel like they downplay some of their current capabilities to sort of both impress us with their potential, but lull us into a bit of a false sense of security. That's just what I get from whenever I've had discussions with people involved in it, and especially colleagues at King's who are from Taiwan, from Singapore, talking with them, that was definitely their impression that the Chinese downplayed their current capabilities a bit, but overplayed their future capabilities a bit. I think that is an accurate view. Uh, one of the things that I see uh, almost regularly on Twitter is that when you talk directly about current Chinese capabilities, that you get what amounts to a cognitive dissonance pushback because people can't credit the Chinese with having capabilities equivalent to Western navies or Western ground militaries. But if you look at places like uh, Battlers, uh, the YouTube channel, they've got three recent videos on the Chinese uh, Marine Corps that just knock your socks off. And the amphibious brigades of the uh, People's Liberation Army, they've got 12 amphibious brigades, six of which are across the straits from Taiwan. They've got a special forces brigade in that group, and they've got what amounts to a uh, lift for a brigade of light infantry integrated into this mess. And the amphibious army brigades directly across from Taiwan have their own landing craft that can quite easily move their ZBD-5 uh, amphibious uh, vehicles across the strait. And when you look at the map of, say, D-Day, and you lay it across China to Taiwan, and you look at current capabilities, the Chinese can put three divisions onto the shores of Taiwan at short notice, and they can probably put another two divisions airlift by their paratroops and helicopters in addition to that. And, you know, Taiwan going down in a week, if the Chinese get the electronic warfare side right, is not out of the realm of current Chinese capabilities. But when you talk about those things on Twitter, the pushback is essentially cognitive dissonance 101. Well, I also think there's an attempt to superimpose Western naval structure and organization onto the PLAN. You know, the concept that the, the PLAN is going to operate amphibious ready groups like we operate amphibious ready groups is I, I don't think that's right. I, I think I think the Chinese have a much different vision of how they're going to operate their forces because their vision is not a blue on blue water 
type Navy. It's not a peer on peer type structure that they're going for. And I, I think this has been a historic problem. I mean, look at the, the vision that the Americans had of the Japanese prior to World War II. The concept that the Japanese could put six carriers together in the, in the Kido Butai was a struck was absolutely, you know, a, a concept that the Americans had practiced at, but never really said that that's what they were going to do. And even late, even into the war, they never really did that. They operated single carrier task forces up until the point when they could operate more together. And, you know, those concepts I think is very important is understanding what's the doctrine, what's their, what's their ultimate goal. The Chinese are focused right now on trade, trade protection. They're basically adopting the true Mahanian concept that sea power, maritime power is a combination of military and, and naval. And they've got the commercial. They've, you know, they've been able to dominate the, the commercial trade without a doubt. And what they're definitely concerned about is that trade getting impinged. And I think that's what the PLAN is going for now. I think, but later, the, the threat potentially is that if there is a threat to that trade, that the PLAN can operate to basically nullify it or basically attempt to prevent it from becoming an issue down the road. If that means grabbing islands, if that means deploying forces, you know, and they're not going to deploy an amphibious ready group. They'll deploy all their amphibs at the same time. They'll deploy, you know, once they get beyond the, the 003 carriers and start producing their carriers, they'll operate them as groups and they'll operate them in conjunction with their land-based forces in a way that the U.S. Navy will not be able, I think, to do very effectively because they'll be able to operate under a much more coherent structure. And, and I think that's probably our biggest issue right now in looking at the PLAN again is we, we try to superimpose our this is the way we operate this is the way therefore they will operate and I think you have to think outside and look at how the Chinese have used military forces in the past and you know the argument that well they haven't fought a war in 50 years is completely ridiculous I, I, I mean the concept right it's ridiculous because you make the argument that well the US Navy really hasn't fought a naval war in 50 years if you get to that argument we've bombed like crazy from air car aircraft carriers, but you know we really have not been in a blue blue water type structure, and and that's what you're seeing here. Hmm. I mean, to be honest, you could even argue that the the U.S. Navy hadn't fought a uh, hadn't fought a proper war for about forty years when World War Two broke out. Uh, right, and that's, you go back and, to the American War. Yeah, and that, and to be honest, that's only if you count beating up the Spanish as an actual war. <laughs> um, before that, you have to go back to the American Civil War. But you know, the, the fact they hadn't fought a uh, quote unquote proper war for you know at least one in one or two entire generations of naval officers didn't stop them from eventually rolling the Japanese. So, you know, just just because you haven't fought a war for a while doesn't necessarily mean you're not capable of doing things it's, it's the same kind of thing as um I, I know i've mentioned this before but it's the same kind of thing as um you know sometimes you see these statements with the, when it comes to chinese carriers of oh yes well um it, it, we've had a, a nearly a century to learn how to do carrier operations and the chinese haven't therefore they're not going to be any good at them oh, <laughs> <laughs> and i'm just thinking they're going mm, yes but no one had any idea how to do carrier combat operations in 1939, uh, but there's a bit of a radical difference between 1939 and 1945. You can learn a little bit faster than that if you need to. And for that matter, and carriers had let's be honest also, of that point. This is going to sound terrible, but those Chinese, the Chinese are not, haven't been sitting in an isolation chamber. They have been going out and learning. They have been going out and... I can guarantee 
copies of my book on destroyers will probably, when it comes out will be bought by Chinese universities will be bought by Chinese uh, naval officers. You know how I know that? Because a couple of them have already emailed me going, really looking forward to your book, really looking forward to learning about these destroyers. The one thing about the Chinese, which has always impressed me, and this is often seems to be far more whenever I sort of they come to Kings or these things, they're very prepared to be students of history. They are very yes. prepared to go and learn from other people. Now, I'm not, this is not, uh, me saying this, and please, no one who's listening to this can go, oh, you're saying that the British and the Americans and all these people aren't prepared to learn from history. That's so wrong. No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that sometimes the the Western nations seem to put their faith in the promises of engineers of what they think will come up over going with the lessons of history of what will happen of what might happen. It's like the amount of times with things like um well, let's take this a whole scenario. When we are talking about the British carrier program, we are, me and Drac were quite big fans of the Queen of Glass. We think they're very, they're very nice ships. But both of us are incredibly skeptical. I would have, I would hope, I think I can speak both some sailors about a the promised availability of with only two ships versus the reality of building a third, and also the fact that they have focused them. I feel they could have made them slightly bigger because I think the trouble is when they're thinking they've forgotten the first rule of history when it comes to aircraft carriers. They are limited by the size of their hangar. You cannot really change the size of a carrier's hangar. So therefore, you always build your hangar with space for expansion. The British, the only class which was really planned for this was the Malta class, I would argue, in terms of British design history, and CVA1 was designed with it. The Queen Elizabeth class has been so designed around F-35B and the Merlin that I would say that if any aircraft, if they grow anything bigger, they are going to be problematic. You, It's going to affect your air group size. And the trouble is, our major ally who we work with most often not is the Americans, who design far bigger carriers, so are far less constrained by space when it comes to aircraft size. So, and it's, what you know, in the end, the only options are you either reduce your aircraft carriers, your air complement on your carrier when aircraft grow, or theoretically, I suppose, you chop them down the middle and you add a section in the middle like you do with cruise liners. Now, I'm a bit sceptical about doing that, but hmm. Sal, you know, you might go, yeah, that's actually a viable thing to do. Maybe that understand. Now I understand why the Queen Elizabeth has a split house design now. That's the perfect <laughs> reason why it, it has the two houses. That could be it. No, you, I mean, you just explained the illustrious class. Again, Jamie's not here, but this is this is the, the armored carrier. This is the issue that they had with that finite hangar uh, capacity they have. You know, I we're crazy not to think the Chinese have not been looking at every major naval operation since the Falklands onward. You know, they looked mm. in 1990. They looked at the Persian Gulf War, where the U.S. staged six aircraft carriers to the Persian Gulf War. 2003, we staged five aircraft carriers. I, I have yet to see, really, in a Navy discussion, how many aircraft carriers could we stage right now to the East Asia? East Asia? And if you think about it, Na U.S. Navy has 11 carriers. Take the Ford out. It's not working. You know, you're down <laughs> to 10. You know, that's down. you're down to nine now. You have five on the West Coast, four on the East Coast, 
five, one's going to be down. You know, the most you can have is three to four carriers deployed. The rest have got to come from the East Coast there. Uh, they're not coming through the Panama Canal. They can't come through the canal anymore, obviously, because of their size. The one major naval base the Chinese have overseas is Djibouti, which, again, puts you abreast of the Suez Canal coming out of the Red Sea. Uh, the Chinese know this. They know, you know, they know how long it takes for the U.S. to build up its forces. They, they know this. If they're going to do something, they're going to do something fast. They know time is, 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 you know, not on their side. And they also have the example of the Japanese from World War II running rampant for six months and then having to deal with the Americans coming in. So, again, I, I don't understand this, this concept even to today, why we have, for example, the U.S. Navy deployed the way it does with half the force in the Atlantic, half the force in the Pacific. Are, are, are we going to fight a, the Battle of the Atlantic again? I don't think so. Well, the, I don't think that's the structure we have. Well, isn't the, that the worst case scenario? Russia and China both deciding to go play yes. Nazi at the same yeah. time. Well, the, the, the funny the funny thing is, I've the, the, over the weekend and into this week, I've actually been doing a lot of in-depth reading on Mahan and Corbett, because as of the time of recording, I'm preparing to um, finish up Dr a video on... Dr Drac, you have to pick one. You can't have both. I mean, don't you no, understand no, the, I, the concept? That, that naval, that, that, that there's the one or the other. You can add. It's heresy yeah. you're talking about right now, Drac, that you're reading both. Well, you know, you could add it in Richmond, Cable, all the others, and well, the, they work the, together. Yeah, the main subject of the video is going to be Mahan and, and his influence on things. So obviously you've got to understand what everyone else was thinking at the same time. But it is very interesting because just earlier today when I was going over his naval principles thing, um, he talks about geography, um, both strategic geography and and the physical geography of individual countries. And one of the things he points out, because obviously he's writing in the 18, late 1800s before the Panama Canal comes up, and he specifically says that um, the US has most of the physical geography that would, should make it a great naval power. It's got lots of nice deep water ports. It's got lots of uh, internal waterways. It's got a continuous... Um, geographical area it's not split up like France is between the Mediterranean and, and the Atlantic except for the bit that he points out you know at that time we don't have a Panama Canal or as equal as an Isthmian Canal at the time and he specifically says you know at the moment our in our strategic interests are all located in the Atlantic but if we do end up having significant strategic interests in the Pacific the lack of a connection between the Pacific and the Atlantic is going to be a ma either a major source of weakness or a major source of expense or both. And so therefore later in life, he would go on to champion the Panama Canal being built as a priority. And as you say, it's like now the Panama Canal exists, it exists almost entirely because of that whole strategic balance. But now we've got a case of, um, you know, can the carriers actually get through the canal? And if not, then we're back to the late 1800s where the lack of that because of the transit times involves poses a major strategic weakness and we've also got the fact that i would say this in terms of when i'm looking at the ships that are being built and i would say this across the west and it's one of the things i interesting that i note with the again the the russian and the chinese vessels we are spending exquisite amounts on the sensors they are exquisitely well-armed, exquisite computers. They need to be. That's what we're developing. But even look at the amount of missiles they're carrying. I'm sort of going, this is a, there is a disconnect going on here. And, of course, this comes back to the bilge pump rating system, which we've been going on about now for a while and keep going on about. 
you know, the first, second, third rate thing. The hearing that the Type 45s are going to be made up to third rates. Great idea. Hallelujah. But I'm sitting there looking and thinking, well, the US Navy is about to decommission their first rates, which are their TCOs. They are the ones that can carry the biggest missile arms. The US Navy, if anyone does need a first rate, it's the US Navy. And the reason they need it is this. They need something powerful which can move back and forth through the Panama Canal. Yes. And that's the thing, because that's the only way they can, because you can't shift the carriers through. But the easiest way you could strengthen your West Coast carrier fleet is if you could take your first rates or your cruises, etc., from the East Coast and go straight through. And suddenly those carry groups would have, let's say they go from having one cruiser to two cruisers with each one and each one carrying 160 or something BLS tubes. That suddenly that's a big problem from an air attack point of view or an air defense advantage from an air defense point of view. Your carrier group suddenly has two huge gripping missile farms with it instead of one going. You're not going to get close. The other problem, though, we have, and I, I swear this is this is a product of the whole end of history scenario, is that the carrier air group's range has been allowed to just reduce, reduce, reduce. You know, we were, well, yeah, we, were, we were talking about this the other day on Bullish Pumps, and it was basically what people keep going, it's the end of the carrier, and you're going, well, no, it's not the end of the carriers. What's the problem is the carrier air groups are just not been invested in not just the range i mean speed of the uh, speed of the aircraft have decreased i mean if you look at everything load capacity you know the you know the a6 intruder was was a dump truck of bombs i mean it really was i mean it was just exactly what you wanted to come in to drop as 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 many smart or dumb bombs as you wanted whereas now i, I mean f-18s have got to be everything they've got to be your 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 electronic warfare aircraft they got to be your tanker they have to be Everything, and you're never going to get a naval aviator to agree to drones to unmanned aircraft. I'm I'm sorry, as long they're they're going to fight that until the end of day because unless they can hop into it and put their scarf on and catapult off of it, they're, yes. they're just not going to want to see it on, on on an aircraft carrier. And then add to it, you've diminished the range, you've diminished the capabilities, you've diminished the size of the task force too. I mean, the carrier, you know, if you look at a carrier task force, there were some images out not too long ago about a carrier battle group the u.s uh, announced the a, 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 a battle group recently that was like uh, two ships and like a, a a detachment you know that was their battle group whereas if you look at battle groups in the past there were eight to ten ships i mean they were they were massive in size add to it the the combatant commanders continually put this strain on them that they i need a carrier battle group here i need a carrier battle group here which further diminishes the ability to project that force together as a coherent strike group that's what the chinese see i mean they see american carriers just you know all around the planet all the time they don't have to defeat the u.s navy they have to defeat portions of the u.s navy yes. that's what the russians see i would argue that the russians right now are probably one of the fleets that need to be watched very well because they can put together a coherent strike force pretty powerful you know centered on you know one of the old kirovs if they wanted to but even along their other vessels that can basically knock out an American carrier battle group just by in terms of, of raining missiles down upon them in terms yes. of the numbers they have. 
And you can make the argument, well, there's only one of those. Well, they're only going to go against one American task force. There's probably not going to be two, three of them. And that's the issue that keeps getting missed here. Uh, is that the enemy gets to choose the time you don't and that's always been the issue is we don't get to choose the time of this the enemy does they choose their strike and when they choose their strike they're ready to go they're ready to put as many platforms together as they can and you have to come with what you have and that's it is it the clue that when people might they have multiples of two rather than multiples of three or four that's the moment at which you know that a nation is going right and we can we are so confident and overconfident we believe we can choose when we're going to fight wars and you sit there and go no well the moment you've gone down to a three you are being economical but still accepting that you can't choose when you're going to fight a war four well there's a reason that's used for your continuous at sea deterrence and the fact that then someone turns around and goes, oh, we can get away with two, while at the same time saying for another function, you have to have four in order to guarantee one at sea. And if you, you have know, one, you're, if you have one, you're the French. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> if you have one, you have none. Yeah. But yeah. Again, you're the French. There's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting little fact for, for everyone. You know, um, assuming you load up an, a Super Hornet for interdiction, i.e. You, you have something other than a pair of sidewinders strapped to the side. Um, the current combat range of a U.S. carrier battle group's air wing on interdiction missions is significantly less than the combat mission range of an Imperial Japanese Navy air group in World War II. Yes. So, you know, if, if, if Final Countdown was to happen again um you could end up in the hilarious scenario of the kido butai could launch an airstrike at the nimitz beyond the range at which nimitz could launch a counter-strike which is probably not what the original makers of that movie had in mind and let's be honest the sea whiz would probably run out of 20 millimeter before they run out of planes yes well the core problem with the U.S. Navy today in terms of strike range boils down to the failed procurement of the A-12 Avenger II at the end of the Cold War. When that plane went down, the politics of lowest common denominator focused on the F-18. And there was an attempt for a Tomcat 21, but at the time, the politics of the Senate, that is Senator Kennedy, was going to make sure F-18 survived over the Tomcat. Frankly, we would have been better off going with a Tomcat 21. That is basically a a stretched, improved F-14 that was turned into a multi-role strike fighter because it was built to carry four Phoenix, or excuse me, six Phoenix missiles. You know, that's a lot of payload. And if you still had the Tomcats today, you wouldn't be talking about the range problems. Uh, the other thing that the U.S. Navy didn't do but should have was, and part of this was the INF Treaty, develop an air launch capability for conventional cruise missiles that reached out about 15 nautical, 1,500 nautical miles. If you had, say today, an A-12 Avenger or a Tomcat 21 with Lorazm and air refueling, you would not be talking to the problems that we are having today. This is the failed procurements of the late Cold War are what has left the United States Navy and Western navies as a whole in the whole compared to the Chinese. The Chinese, 
both Dr. Clark and Drakenfeld talk about HMS Warrior and how the Royal Navy looked at all the ironclads around the world and said, we're going to build one that nobody else can match and we're going to dare anyone else to come after it. And I look at the as a military, ex-military procurement official looking at the Chinese Marine Corps and Navy, what I see is that HMS Warrior planning on the part of the Chinese. And the, one of the things that most people in the West miss is a lot of senior communist Chinese, Chinese party officials are STEM trained. They're engineers. They come up through their huge civil engineering programs into higher levels of uh, political power. And it makes them better able to uh, understand what is doable and what is not compared to Western elites. And it shows up right now in the Navy. It shows up in their Marine Corps and Army. If you look at their vehicle procurements compared to, say, the British Army and the problem with trying to get a warrior replacement, mine. It wasn't even, no, no, Ajax wasn't a warrior replacement. Ajax was a scout vehicle which turned into a light tank. It's which a Bradley. has just gone weird. <laughs> it, it's, it's just gone it's, weird. That, okay, that, that, mo that movie about the Bradley procurement yeah. popped in oh. my yes. head there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, in a nice way, my the movie that keeps popping up in my head is the one which had the hover tank in it and was a comedy. But we'll leave that to one side. Well, Pentagon Wars Two British Edition is the yes, it will be the Ajax exactly. program. program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you know, you come back to this idea again, the American Navy is operating under the principle that a war in East Asia would be like Task Force 38 off the coast of Japan in the spring and summer of 1945, where, you know, it doesn't matter about the Japanese air defenses. We'll be able to penetrate it and in and do what we want. What they forget is, number one, that was costly immensely mm -hmm. in terms of aircraft for the Americans. Still, they lost a lot of aircraft in that to be able to put that up that's a lot a lot of, lost a lot of ships i mean they had a lot of carrier damage they were rotating ships out quite frequently and the only reason they were able to do that is because they had had the production in 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 process to replace vessels what they need and to be also looking because at they had task force 58 sitting further away that the plan was that if they had to invade the japanese the task force 58 would come up and help out with it and do quite a lot of the work because there was the actual American study, which estimated that, yes, by day five, the only one with carriers which will still be working will probably be the British. That's exactly it. The, the British <laughs> armored carriers were the example that they, you know, and again, that's what they don't look at. They don't, again, because they're not operating in multi-task force carrier operations anymore. When they, when the United States does that, when they have to put carriers together, that throws the entire cycle off. They did three carriers a few years ago, and that has completely thrown their cycle off for rotating vessels. And what they need to look at is the example of, you know, Task Force 3757 when it was operating with the British carriers and their ability to operate in that environment, take damage and still operate because they're going to be operating in an, um, under an umbrella that they don't have control over. And the U.S. Navy by themselves will not be able to operate in that. This is the this is the weird concept that the U.S. Navy is under that they can operate in this environment with no problems. You look at things like the light amphibious war, uh, warship they're designing. This 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 vessel that's basically a modified LST. They'll be able to drop Marines on the you know on, on small islands, put ashore land-based uh, missiles. Again, they're going to be completely under the ballistic missile umbrella of the Chinese, and, and the Chinese are going to look at those things. And, right, and the Chinese are going to look at these things like, okay, we're going to wipe this off the map here real quick, and and move on. And, and yeah, and, but you see, the thing is, the the U.S. Navy does has a fear. Let's probably have a theory on that one because. Don't take this the wrong way. 
But my thinking for China, if they actually launch a ballistic missile, they're in trouble. Because if they have, I don't know, a president like Biden, and certainly my experience receiving was, he might, who knows what he's going to do. But if you have a president like Trump, he's probably going to press the button and then ask questions later. And you could have ballistic missiles coming back at you. And a president like Obama could even have been for, or could even feel that they're forced into it because they're so shocked. The trouble is the moment you launch a ballistic missile, even if it's a DF-21, whatever it is, if it's a ballistic missile you're launching, it has those connotations. And that's the trouble for the Chinese. I think I often often sit there and look at their ballistic missiles and I see consider almost white elephants designed to draw a lot of Western funding away from the real threat, which is their humongous cruise missile armament. Yeah. Because they can reach pretty much everywhere with their cruise missiles they can reach with the DF-21s. But the point is, you're going to be so worried about the DF-21s and the potential threat of them, you're going to be carrying SM-3s, you're going to be carrying all sorts of systems to protect yourself against the DF-21s when it's going to be the cruise missiles raining down on you. And any tubes which aren't carrying the systems to protect against those cruise missiles are going to be wasted tubes. And for the Chinese, that's an incredibly cheap way of costing you a lot of money without actually having to do, take any risk themselves. Because if they launch those ballistic missiles, that's going to create that could create a response of ballistic missiles, which could may end up they end up with a nuclear war, and they don't want that. But the threat of them is enough that as long as they're around as a threat, they're going to keep the U.S. Navy's focus. And also, how much energy is the U.S. Navy going to tra expend trying to track them down and destroy them? How many aircraft will it lose? How many things uh, pilots will it lose trying to track those things down and destroy them before they get they take them out? Where well, it reminds. Sorry, go, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say it reminds me of a of a situation in the very late part of the nineteenth century, which nowadays everybody kind of looks back on and says, "Yeah, that was a mistake. The Royal Navy had kind of lost its way." Which is the period when everyone, when the Royal Navy didn't know exactly what it wanted to do, um, other than stay on top, and so whenever somebody came out with something new and fancy and potentially dangerous the royal navy would build counters to it but it meant that in the space of 10 15 years they'd built literally dozens of separate classes of ships in ones and twos just aimed at specifically countering individual and enemy potential enemy vessels and so when you're sort of rolling around into the into the 20th century there is no commonality there is no sense of what they're actually going to do with these things um so you've got things like the powerful class cruisers so they're incredibly expensive incredibly large okay ostensibly on paper got a relatively large gun armament but there's only two of the blasted things they cost almost twice as much as a contemporary battleship and the entire reason for that massive amount of construction was because the Russians built a single armored cruiser that looked like it might be slightly better at commerce raiding than 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 the average was. And they were like, no, we have to have we have to have something that can counter it. We have to have something that's bigger and better than it, and we have to have two. So we're going to build that, and then now we have the counter to I think it was Rurik. Now we're not going to build any more. Yeah, and that was what it. I mean, sensible is building a class of because let's be honest, the powerfuls were cool ships and would have been useful ships it's you know yeah but but it, but the, the, the thing is it, it was a very big expensive counter that probably was never going to come about because let's face it in the unlikely event that there was some kind of weird naval war between britain and russia 
in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, the chances of the one Russian armored cruiser that they were properly worried about happening to be deployed in exactly the location that one of two ships, one of which would probably be in maintenance any one time, was going to be deployed to, to find it, and they would run into each other if they were even in the same ocean, was so stupidly remote as to make the whole exercise completely pointless. And yeah, you could have built lots and lots of powerfuls at the ridiculous expense, or you could have just, you know, kept on building regular armoured cruisers. And if you were that worried about this one um, potential slightly more powerful enemy armoured cruiser, well, then you use the fact you've got lots of them to mob it, which is, it's kind of, and you see this what the change. British did with the Grass Bay at the Battle of the I was going to say, that, that's, that's, <laughs> the, that's kind of the change in strategy. Instead of going with with that sort of we're going to build one particular counter to it and it's going to take up an awful lot of space in our battle roster you just build lots of regular stuff and assume okay well yeah you can bring your one big powerful massive ship to the fight and we'll turn up with three or four of our own and you still lose <laughs> and if you manage to sink one or two of ours well it's still less of a loss to us than than your one big ship is is for for your opponent and i, I think in in some ways yeah, it's the, it is always this thing of if the underdog, which in in some ways, because China is the up and coming navy, it kind of is at this point. If they build four different weapon systems, all ostensibly designed to take out U.S. carriers, that means the U.S. has to go to the expense and trouble of developing four different counters to four separate systems, all of which are very big and expensive, all of which need to be built in in large enough numbers to be deployed across the US fleet because they don't know which ships are potentially going to be in the Western Pacific at any given time. And meanwhile, the Chinese are sitting back there and going, well, you know, we spent, let's say arbitrarily, we spent $250 million developing these four weapon systems and it's cost the US $4 billion to develop the counters. In fact, it's probably a lot more than that on either side. But, you know, on average, you, you've now forced the US to assuming the Chinese decide actually we're going to commit to and only use one of these systems in an actual war, you've basically wasted billion, forced the US to waste billions upon billions upon billions of dollars working on a bespoke counter to something that's never going to be used. Unfortunately, the US Navy... Oh, go ahead, Trent. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I would say the issue for American military right now, at least in terms of countering the A2AD systems the Chinese are putting together to support their uh, first island expansion is the huge focus on hypersonic weapons when, frankly, from the Western point of view, uh, something like the Ra the Lorazm, especially if you, you stretch the missile a little to get longer range, just works much better for our suite of technology as, and our, for pr our production systems. If you produce 5,000 conventional tomahawks and, and two or 3,000 lorasms within expanded range, and you could launch them from aircraft, that is not only uh, the carrier forces, but F-15s, B-1s, B-52s, we would be in a much better situation in dealing with the Chinese because all those little islands you know, if we could, you know, drop 5,000 cruise missiles in, in two or three weeks, that's going to reduce the ability of the Chinese to uh, do their thing as much as the Chinese blanketing American carriers with cruise missiles. They're vulnerable to those things. And 
at least with the Tomahawks, they've been around for so long, they're multi-purpose. They can do anti-ship, they can do ground attack, and more importantly, they can take out the Chinese over-the-horizon backscatter radars, which are giving them real-time tracking of American naval forces within 2,000 miles of the Chinese coast. It, you know, the purblind inability of, of the U.S. Navy and the Western militaries and the Joint Chiefs to recognize things like the Chinese over-the-horizon backscatter radars and their ability to track vessels is almost Afghan-like in, in unwillingness to, to face reality. You see, I put it in a different way because I don't think they don't recognize this because I talk with a lot of these people and I think they recognize it. I think the trouble is they have who's selling it to the people who sign the paychecks and pay the bills. Because the trouble is the people who, and this is going to sound straight, this is one of the reasons why we do Build the Trump. This is one of the reasons why I do the YouTube channel and we do armchair admirals and all sorts of things. Because not enough people seem to have a background understanding of naval history. And therefore, they don't necessarily understand, uh, they don't sort of, the concepts which we all consider to be derogue, we either underpin our conversation. You think about it, how many things do we, have we not had to say or not had to explain before we've been getting into this? We all know what Elrasm stands for. We all know these sort of things. Most people don't. And the trouble is when you're trying to sell that you need to buy these 5,000 missiles, if you're talking to a treasury which is full of modern economists who are trained in the standard modern, you know, the just-in-time logistics, they're sitting there going, but that's a huge amount of capital which is wasted just sitting there. That's a huge amount of money out there. And they're going, it's not wasted there because even if it's just sitting there, it's sitting there as deterrent. But unfortunately, you're also going to need to replace it every few years because those things are going to actually going to need to be reconditioned and repaired and maintained. So they're going to cost money. And that's but you need to tell them that you need to sell that to them. And this was this is a concept which you have to explain to people. So and the trouble is, again, if we look at our modern admirals and most of our modern generals, and I think this is part of the problem of Ajax, etc., they are very much STEM background, which is a good thing because it means they understand the engineering problems. But in my experience of teaching a lot of engineers, because I teach history of engineering to engineering students, engineers go back to first principles. They talk about mathematics. Everything is very logically based. And the trouble is, most people aren't. There is a reason not everyone is an engineer. In fact, the vast majority of people in the world are not engineers. The vast majority of people do not think like engineers. And the whole, this is the point I sometimes make about naval historians like me and what historians do. Our main job is translating what professionals or people did in the past and putting into language which people today can understand who don't, aren't professionals in it, who aren't specialists in it. Today, you almost need the navies to start having a separate strand of training, which is the example I tend to give when I'm talking about Cameron is Lieutenant General Ted Martin, former Traddock of the US Army. He is an exceptional communicator for the US Army. If you look online and you start talking about the US Army, in within 10 minutes, someone will be quoting him and saying what he's saying, his explanation about something. And 
they always do that. They always total quote in. And he's very, very good about this. Where's the US Navy's equivalent? Where's the Royal Navy's equivalent? Where's the French Navy's equivalent? Because we're all involved in this. We know who they were. Can you think of one? No, it's a, that's the issue they have. I mean, the Air, U.S. Air Force is Dave Depula over at the, at the Mitchell Institute right now for, for air power. I mean, he's great at doing that. He will get out there and, and sell that. And that's the problem that the Navy has. I, I, I go back to something you guys were talking about a second ago because I, I think it's really important. In many ways, the U.S. military has become almost the Wehrmacht of, of 1944 and 45. And I don't mean that derogatorily. I mean that in terms of concept. They are much more in, enticed, you know, with with the King Tiger, the Jag Panther style of of of, yes. of 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 weaponry. Whereas, you know, the Sherman was able to beat a tiger. You just need a whole batch of them. You know, you're going to lose four Shermans to, to get that tiger, but the fifth and sixth one are going to put the kills in for you. Same thing with the Me 262s. You know, go up against a squadron of of, of Thunderbolts, of of Spitfires, of of Mustangs. The Me 262 will lose every time because there's one of them and there's a squadron of those other ones. And in many ways, that's what the Chinese have basically adopted the concept of. They've come up with the idea of 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 the Star Wars uh, defense. You know, we built Star Wars to force the, China, uh, the the Russians to spend huge amounts of money on nuclear missiles, and the system never worked. It never, it never, never bore fruition. But it, it, it economically, it, it worked really well, and, and that's what we're missing out on. That's what I think when, when Trent, you were talking about the um, – uh, or maybe it was uh, Alec talking about the DF-21s, the hypersonics. It's forcing us to do it. I, I was really amazed when the Navy announces they're giving up on the railgun because the railgun, even if it never works, forces the opposition to have to deal with it. They have to counter it. As long as you're sitting there saying, we're going to develop this, and this is what this railgun is going to eventually do for us. Once you get rid of it, then – the enemy doesn't have to worry about countering that in any ways. It, already, it already forced the Chinese to, to go with that Gauss gun work. Yep. They deployed one on a, a landing ship tank, didn't they? Yep. It went out, tested it, and they, they they continually had to do it. And and again, I, I, I come back to this issue that I don't think the Chinese are, are gonna go peer to peer, you know, toe to toe. That's not what they're they're out. They they, they are right now trying to economically and commercially dominate. East Asia, which they're doing very effectively, I think. They're doing that really good. I mean, if you look at the Ever Given that was aground in the, in, the, in the Suez, she's going to a Chinese yard. That's a Taiwanese vessel going to a Chinese yard for repair. You know, if they can make themselves the economic powerhouse in the area, if they can humble Korea and humble Japan and humble Taiwan and put themselves economically, they, they're they also learning from the Russians what the Russians did in, in, in you know, in, in Georgia, what they did in the Ukraine. They can get what they want without going to full out war, which is better for them. They they don't want that. War is the worst thing for the Chinese because they war can't is afford. Economically it. terrible. Oh, it it just because you can defeat them economically by just cutting them off. They, their nightmare scenario is what happened to them, you know, by the Japanese in the mid you know 1930s when they got cut off from from supplies. They were they were they were encircled. They were entrapped. You know, then they went into northern Indochina. They cut the Burma Road, and, and China was basically at the mercy of Japan in that moment. And they saw how Japan was was basically destroyed by the Allies in World War II, Operation Operation Strangulation. They just cut them off. They just cut their food and fuel off, and they never had to invade with them. It's not just the atomic bombs. It was it was it was the economic strangulation that got them, and, and that's their issue right there. And I think again. The U.S. and many of its allies miss out on that. They're 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 looking at 
at, at China being like the Soviet Union of old, wanting to spread communism. I don't think the Chinese are trying to spread communism anywhere. <laughs> I mean, look at Shanghai. That's not communist. The Chinese aren't communist or capitalist. They're mercantilist. Yeah, exactly. I keep trying to explain to people, and people can look at me and go, but, but well, they if they know what mercantilism is, they go, but that's old. No one does mercantilism anymore. I went, have you actually looked at the Chinese economy and the way they talk about it? And the way but they that's the model them? they need to look it's at. Mercantilism. It, it's the British Empire, I hate to say it, guys, but it's the British mm. Empire. Yeah. That's what they're looking yes. at. That's, that's hey, exactly look, we were the most successful at. empire the world has ever known. Evil, because we took over everywhere, but the most successful empire the world's ever known. You know, it's nice. Emulation is the sincerest form of flattery. Yeah, well, I mean, again, looking at the mercantilist system, you've got, you know, restrict, it, restrict people's commerce so they only have to deal with you. And you can do that all sorts of ways. You can do that by direct intimidation. You can do it by becoming the sole source supplier. You can even do it by undercutting everybody else until they depend on you and it's too expensive to switch things around. Then you increase your prices. But what of the As other thing? people call the Uber or Amazon mm. model. Yeah. Or the, but the other thing you do with the mercantilist system is you exploit the weaknesses of your opponents in order to get basically to, to get other people to do the weakening and the embarrassing of your opponents for you without actually having to lift a finger um so like last week when i did the vi video on barbary pirates so after um the american war of independence britain let's face it they kind of wanted to stick it to the americans a little bit but and you know they, <laughs> they, they just signed a peace treaty so you couldn't go roving about just randomly nabbing american ships again because you know i had actually signed a thing saying they wouldn't do that for a while um and so they were just like yeah okay we well, just won't suppress the algerian pirates for 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 a little while and you know when when a, a american ship gets taken by the uh, the the barbary pirates we're going to make a very big uh, uh, we're very concerned about the security of this operational area and uh, probably uh, you know if you're flying an american flag we wouldn't want anything terrible to happen to you it's probably not a safe place to go despite the fact there's only two ships out of dozens that were operating there and um all of a sudden, American commerce dried up because everybody else panicked and um, or started flying rates, British flags. Yeah, insurance rates went up, and uh, in the end, it was only solved by two separate wars with the Barbary states. But all Britain had to do was make a few press releases and watch everything else. I mean, it, it, come on, it forced Thomas Jefferson to actually spend money on a navy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's how much manipulation there was going on. You made Thomas Jefferson not a pacifist. I mean, I mean, come yeah. on, he does the exact thing. It's like literally the first thing he has to do is 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 dispatch the squadron of observation, and, and it it involves him in a war which he never wanted to be in. But but even in that case, you know, and, and that video is great too. I, I enjoyed that immensely. The uh, the first two squadrons that go over, I would argue, are always always put down by the u.s naval historians you ever read you know a u.s navy history of, of of the barbary pirate wars it all starts with preble and, and and the attack on tripoli but in truth the first two squadrons were successful because they suppressed the piracy they were able to move they were convoying they were able to do it and you can make the argument that that was success the success was the tripolitans were were, were confined they were blockaded they, they weren't getting out anymore and commerce was moving but the americans didn't want that long-term aspect they had to go in and use it. I would argue that the, the Chinese are in the long game. They they always are. You know, I go back to the the voyages of Zheng He in in, in the 15th century, 
you know, send that massive fleet out through East Asia, the Indian Ocean, humble everybody. And what do you do? You scrap the fleet because you don't need it anymore because the treasures are flowing into China. Everyone's bringing everything. You don't need a Navy to protect trade anymore because the trade is flowing to you. And, and even when the Europeans come around the corner and make their appearance, they're bringing trade right to your doorstep. It's only later on that, that it becomes a problem in, in, the, in the 19th century. Oh, yeah. Because the Europeans took over all of the Indian trade that was eventually going to China, including opium. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I mean, this is the thing. It's like you can you can see that everyone who studied naval history can see the parallels between what's happening today and what's happened in the past. And to a certain extent, it, it gives you a limited ability to predict what's going to happen in the future, because let's face it, if if China, as, as you were saying, Sal, earlier, you know, they can't they, they don't want to face 11, 10 or 11 U.S. carriers. So, well, they know the Americans have helpfully done done part of that job for them by splitting their forces. But then, you know, why fight four or five carriers if you only need to fight two or three? So I, I would strongly suspect in the next five, ten years, however long, that as China builds up its own forces, they will probably start looking at where are areas that we think we can trigger the Americans into going after and diverting their forces and... What, and force them to worry about those areas because if they've got carriers over there then by default they don't have carriers over where we are which means that if then if we time it right we kick everything off then we can make our whatever gains we want to make at relatively minimal expense and i think one of those interesting flashpoints to look at is going to be afghanistan because you know now now the the us and everybody else is out and the taliban are back in control it's probably going to, in a lot of ways, it, it could end up being something a bit like Cuba is at the moment. You know, Cuba, for, for better or worse, the level, at least from an outside perspective, the level of sanctions and embargoes and all this other stuff that's still imposed on Cuba is vastly out of proportion to any strategic or tactical threat that Cuba poses to the US at the moment. It, it's almost entirely a case of sour grapes over the fact that it's an area it's it's a country in the southern central american sphere that managed to stick two fingers up at the u.s and walk away from it um well there's also this thing called the cuban missile crisis <laughs> yeah yes but 60 years ago the soviet union is dead castro is finally dead although the cia didn't get him <laughs> um, uh, not for so, one of trying not for one no. of trying <laughs> but um, but you know like it, it's there there that's it's something that so far in the past now it should not by any reasonable standard it should be done and dusted with but yet Cuba's almost treated almost as almost as if it was still the late sixties and I think China if they're halfway sensible will probably try and exploit that element of the mentality of some elements of the U.S. political establishment because. Um, especially with various media rightly or wrongly selling at the evacuation from Afghanistan as a humiliation because, you know, the Taliban are back in control after two decades. So what was the point? Um, then if China decides, you know what, because let's face it, we, we know there's going to be sanctions, this withhold, withholding of international aid, that, etc. on Afghanistan, and half of it's going to be more driven by the fact it's that politicians don't like the fact the Taliban are in charge anymore more than any other practical consideration but if China then sits there and goes yeah you know what 
we can divert a fraction of a fraction of a percent of our budget to propping up um, the Afghan regime, you know, free Huawei phones and 5G reception for all or something like that, then with internal security guards for the Taliban run by the Chinese. Yeah, a few surface to air missile units that can pop predators or something like that, then all of a sudden, you know, there, there'll be certain elements of the US political establishment will go, you know, your Afghanistan c cannot possibly be allowed to prosper now that they have rejected freedom and democracy. And they will press for a lot of military effort to be focused on suppressing Afghanistan just to show that you cannot you cannot sort of you can't throw the US out of your country and and also benefit from it. And for the Chinese, again, it's kind of cost cost versus benefit. They'll cost them a few hundred billion dollars to do and end up with billions of dollars potentially of American hardware and attention thrown at it. And meanwhile, the Chinese are sitting there going, yeah, OK, well, if you want to uh, have a carrier permanently stationed in the Western Indian Ocean so you can keep an eye on Afghanistan, well, that's one less carrier we have to fight. So go for it. <laughs> we're we're well, quite happy. Fair, I would say that's not even the Chinese's best option, because let's be honest, the Chinese's best option sits on the other side of the Straits of Hormuz and basically can cause all sorts of trouble because America is linked to defend and secure Western Europe, Western Europe, that's part of NATO. So whilst the fuel supplies from the Middle East aren't that important to Americans economy because they get their fuel supplies mostly from Canada. The fact is, if the way if the, the fuel supplies from the Middle East slow down, we all saw what happened with the Suez Canal when you just had a little bit of problem there, a little bit of trouble there. If you had something block off the Straits of Hormuz, you know, we had a tanker crisis not that long ago when the Iranians kept chasing down British flags of tankers because they were upset with us for something or other. It, there are several pinprick points around the world that can cause trouble. They, you know, the Chinese could, using the Djibouti, etc., could manage to incite some issues with Somalia again. There are lots of things, and we can't, we're talking about the carriers, but it's not the carriers which so much you can, the, uh, which so much matter, because if you can divert enough escorts off the off the U.S. Navy, then even if they have the carriers available, they can't send them into combat, and the escorts, the Arleigh Burks, are being run ragged. Thank God the Americans are finally building the Constellation class, but it's going to be a decade or more before those are in, available in enough numbers to really start taking the pressure off the books. And this is, you can keep the Burks running ragged. You're going to destroy the American fleet because we've seen what's been happening to the American fleet. We've seen the incidents that have happened not that long ago. And there are other incidents which we all know are probably are still happening. They haven't had as calamitous an impact and they haven't had as big an effect, but they've ha they're happening. They've been close calls. And the thing is, it's because the surface fleet is run ragged. As long as you got to keep a squadron and road, a squadron in Japan on ballistic missile defense, I, I mean, you, you, you wear down those numbers. And, and by all accounts, the flight one Burks, the ones without the flight deck, should be, you know, heading for the scrapyard. We should not be running ships that were built in the in the 80s, basically, when they started being laid down. We should be either building flight threes, but we, we don't have the capacity to do it right now. 
And the constellations, the concept of the fact that that ship is not going to be ready for 10 years to me is just beyond well, criminal in many be ways. There's going to be a couple in service a... before then, but it's going to take 10 years before there's suddenly a number actually available. Right. One or two ships doesn't help the U.S. Navy. You need a no. dozen. No. Two dozen. We should be ordering minimally six constellations a year. The last budget had one. <laughs> yeah. But they're still All building right. LCS. I... Uh, <laughs> well, the, uh, <laughs> so, you're gonna get my namesake Sal The Tri-Hull LCS is minimally useful. The other one just you can't get the damn transmissions to work. I mean the the gearing, excuse me, to work properly. And uh, they are in the same class as the Ford class carrier. They are not useful instruments of war. They are not useful instruments of power projecting. They're, the only thing they are useful for is nothing because they take more resources than they provide in service. I would differ in one thing on that trend. I, I think that they could perform a role, but it's an expensive role of an OPV. I, I mean, that's basically what I think they can do. I think one of the things that the Navy has well, lost. If you want an OPV, there's the number of musons and there's the river class. Uh, I, I agree. They're, they're, they're a lot cheaper and they'll operate. The Navy could buy. I agree. But one of the things I think, and, and uh, uh, Chris Cavis has talked about this, is, is the Navy's lost its imagination for what they can use the LCS for. I, I mean, drone carrier, I, I think there's a lot you could do with it you can you can put marines on it as, as a forward presence you know off of south america off africa these places where you don't need to put a burke uh you know out there you know you don't need to send this out there in a piracy patrol it just it, it gets to the point of ridiculous i always go the image that, that makes me the most crazy is 2009 is is getting you know captain phillips off the marisk alabama and you see that little lifeboat and then behind it you have an lhd you have a destroyer and you have a frigate you know it's just you know billions of dollars worth of equipment to save tom hanks you know is 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 is, is a lot it, it just it's but a massive tom hanks matters tom yeah. hanks does matter and don't get me wrong I, th I think we would nationalize everything to save tom hanks but still that's a, that's a lot of resources right there to get a lifeboat and, yeah. and I, I think that's that's the level of of issue that, that the military has is, is we throw either everything at it or nothing at it. And and LCSs were meant to be these platforms. And and whether we like them or not, they're there. They, you know, they are a fact they're of holes life. which are available right now. So you might as well use them. Right. And I think I think that, that the Navy's just having a hard time processing that at the same time. The, I understand the need to keep the Ticonderogas, but understand the 22 Ticonderogas, there's not 22. There are some of them laid up. They haven't been used for years. They've been stripped. Mm. They've been scratched. I mean, they're basically just shells. The ones that they put on that list were some of those that they would take a long time to put them back in the service. And they're basically using them to keep the other ones in service. And, you know, there, there's Congresswoman uh, uh, Luria, who's, who's, who's fighting that a lot. But again, we don't we don't have a a DGX program up. We've we've yet to to stand that up in full force to come up with what's the big replacement. Obviously, the Zoom one all should be it. Yeah, it, honestly, there, here's an easy thing for the U.S. Navy: easy win for your new surface combatant to just get something in the water that'll work. Zumwalt hull power plant that system that's fine. Superstructure with the latest flight free Burke stuff on it, and a whole host of VLS tubes. Done. Built. Start building it. You do not need to go. You do not need to re-engineer the wheel. 
You've got a new yes. hull, you've got a power system which works. A power system which was designed for railgun, so it's got a lot of power in it. Railgun might not work, but it's there. And, and, and this is what we did with the uh, with with the uh, uh, seawolves. I mean, we built three seawolves, well, three uh, zoomwolves. And what do you do? You build the Virginia class, which is basically a derivative from the uh, the seawolves in it. And that I, I again, I, I'm I'm at a loss. Although I will say that under the radar, it hasn't been talked about a lot. Zoomwolves have been having some issue with power because th there is such a huge power difference between them. Their their, their power generation is massive. I mean, it's. Mm. It is a massive power plant. You talk about the power generated from that vessel. It, it, it's crazy compared to other vessels. And so there have been some issues with it. But I agree with you. I, I mean, that seems to be the whole, you know, I don't know if we go with the uh, uh, the whole form, the bow, the way it is right now. But that's that's a whole other issue. But still, I mean, you've got the basic hull form there for a large combatant vessel. Well, to be fair, that hull form, if you go with it, does allow you to, fix, uh, to fit hypersonics in there quite yeah. easily. And that's the advantage. You need the big hull. For the hypersonics the zoom wall if you take off one of the guns and you put in uh 32 or, or 64 vls cells and you put a five inch gun in the in the forward mount and you put some daca that a 57 millimeter or uh, uh you know three or four c rams onto that hull with the the latest Burke radars, it's good. It's enough. It's good enough. It will have growth because of the power system. It's the forward five-inch guns. You get a rail gun that works. You can plug, pull that out and throw it in. You know, it's good enough. It will do you for the next 20 years. And for some reason, the U.S. Navy won't go there. I, I don't know, understand this. This is procurement 101. It's, it, you know, it's simple engineering using existing technologies is not super technology in the future you've got an 80 percent solution that you can implement next year and they won't go there yeah well it's it's i think a lot of it is this um this idea that everything has to be the biggest and the best like um, lcs <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah it doesn't always work work out but the 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 concept the original concept is there and i think again looking at the, the lessons from history um you know it, it's kind of like what was it the the if you look at even look at the u.s navy's own history um you know you have you have everyone in the age of sail looking at various navies and in the 18 late 1810s and early 1820s the u.s navy decides that it's going to try and compete with everybody else in terms of having ships of the line so you get uss pennsylvania you get a bunch of others they try to make them the biggest nastiest most powerful ships that they can possibly get so they invent all sorts of weird and wonderful cut down versions of the 32 pounder gun so you can get universal 32 pounder armament on a first rate and it costs a fortune and they end up with a collection a small collection of some complete some partially complete uh, first second and third rates which are they're pretty they would be pretty lethal in close range combat but they probably would never get there because everybody else's first rates can outrange them um with this with their slightly smaller broadsides 
and the whole thing kind of just dies off to the point that I think even one or two of the one or two of those wooden ships of the line that ended up getting burnt at Norfolk in the opening stages of the American Civil War was had never actually been fully completed. Um, and and it, that's the kind of sort of the wrong way of going about things. That's looking at looking at the bigger in that case, looking at the bigger fleets and going, ah, oh, well, they have these capital ships, therefore we must have these capital ships, but bigger and better. Um, and sort of an extension of that would be some some small nations' attempts to have just first rates when you know the big powers on the block, Britain and France. They yeah, they had a few first rates, but the majority of their fleet were third rates, the workhorse ships. Um, the flip side to that is you know, when they got their thinking right was a couple of decades earlier when they were re around the time of the Barbary Wars, when they were building ships and they decided, actually, we're going to build frigates. Now, we're going to build our frigates a bit bigger, a bit meaner, a bit tougher than everybody else's, but they're still frigates. Yes, they're not going to win a fight with a, a first rate or a third rate, but they'll win a fight with everything else that's in their in their tonnage rating. And, you know, if we squadron them together, they'll probably be enough to make a single bigger ship back off. And for the US Navy at the time, that was by far the, the better approach, as you know, we, we saw the results of, of that in the War of 1812, where, you know, it, it was kind of it was a game of two halves. So the British showed up with a bunch of regular frigates thinking it would be like fighting the French. And it turned out that that was a very good way of increasing the US Navy's fleet numbers. Um, <laughs> but uh, and then in the latter part of the war, the Royal Navy, fair enough. Yeah, they blockaded the US, but they had to turn around and say, actually, we're going to throw the whole collections of third rate ships of the line at you in, and, and Raze frigates specifically to contain what was still a relatively small in terms of numbers threat um and i think in in a lot of ways you kind of look at it these days again with the the us navy now what you really want is large numbers of constellations because let's face it you know yeah the constellation is a frigate but it's a damn good frigate it, it is almost the it's it's very i think i thought it was a bit of inspired uh thinking that they named it the constellations because in a lot of ways it is almost the rebirth of the same concept that you see with the original six frigates yeah they're, they're not first rates they're not ships of the line they're not capital ships but they're pretty much as powerful or more powerful than 99 percent of everything else that everyone calls a frigate that's out there um in fact they are more, they are categorically more powerful than some of the ships that some nations call destroyers so they're, they're pretty nice they're really good units and critically the US Navy could if they wanted to as you mentioned uh, Trent they could build them in large numbers at which if point they can get the yards working yeah but at which point it doesn't matter that individually any given constellation okay maybe it can't face off against a type 055 on its own because you just go okay well, yeah you can beat me one on one good thing I brought four friends with me then isn't it <laughs> try try beating us all now um and there's still space in the fleet for having the big, mean capital ships if you want to redesign something based off of Zumwalt Hull. But they are, they're kind of the fleet leaders, the elites. They're not everything. Well, then you get one of them turning up with maybe four or five constellations. And it's a case of, OK, that's a pretty mean task group we have to mm. deal with. And that's yeah. a mean surface action group that you have to deal with. And that's now there. And the thing is, if that surface action group gets combined with a carrier, that then becomes a fleet group you don't want to fight. And maybe the carrier turns up with 
Burks, like the latest batch of Burks as her backup with her, and she turns up with three Burks. Then there's you've got the Zumwalt derivative and you've got the five or six constellations. That's suddenly a very mean task for a group to try and take on. And, and what if we, and what if we add dozens of USVs, which now can field SM6s, which according yes. to the Department of Defense in their in their tweet, which I love, I wanted to bring this up. Game changing cross domain cross service concepts. I, I just you know the no one can beat the department. No one can beat the defense a, for for coming up with names. That to me is that is the yeah. ultimate right there. Someone uh, was uh, having buzzword bingo orgasms with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'd love, I'd love to see which, um, I'd love to see which, like, uh, I, I bet you so, somewhere down the line, in somewhere in the halls of the Pentagon, there's a very confused army officer looking at an unmanned ship, equipped with surface-to-air missiles, wondering how the heck are we supposed to use this cross-service? <laughs> well, he's a very confused. A garrison on an island somewhere in the yeah. Pacific. It's by gum wonderful. <laughs> There's going to be some very, very confused planners going, well, you know, when we have to retake Kabul, we will somehow integrate a surface ship into this operation. Just randomly shows up, presumably airdropped if, like uh, in Pacific Rim by about 20 Chinooks. <laughs> if, if you can airlift that four pack of VLS cells and set up on the ground anywhere, Mm. Then yeah, your joint service, and you can use a Chinook to, to move it. The the thing that you want is the proliferation of VLS cells. That that was the big thing that the INF treaty prevented the American flag ranks from considering. Well, now that the INF treaty is gone, we should be proliferating uh, VLS cells on everything. So the other side doesn't know. Is it empty? Does it have a Tomahawk? Does it have an SM6? Does it have an SM3 uh, Block 2A, which mm. can take out an ICBM? And it's, you know, it's on an on a, uh, an amphibious platform at Wake Island. But, uh, you know, if if the Chinese launch those hypersonic missiles at, at Hawaii, suddenly they get whacked on the way there because they, you know, they don't know what's in those cells. The ability to proliferate shell game, you know, if there are lots of VLS cells, and if there are more missiles than there are VS, VLS cells, then the Chinese don't know what's in any given cell, so their calculation of risk goes into the toilet. If you want deterrence, you have got to make uncertainty the goal of military procurement. If you have lots and lots of VLS cells and lots and lots of missiles, and you've got more missiles than VS, VLS cells, the Chinese can't know what capability is forward deployed at any given time? And if you want to deter, that's the way you go. This is why I'm such a big fan of Tomahawks and Lorasms over hypersonic missiles. Numbers count for a lot. And if they are accurate weapons that can only be stopped by a counter weapon, then you're winning the A2AD game right there. Hmm. The way you beat a 2 AD is you get more of the same and you dare the other side to, to figure out what's where. 
But the problem also, is the Chinese through open source can basically track every one of our ships, whether commercial or, or military right now. They know where everything is. It is much harder to do it with the Chinese because the Chinese are everywhere. I mean, mm. you know, is, is a fishing boat carrying, a, you know, a mine or a torpedo, mm. you know, mixed in there off of the Galapagos Islands, for example, which can then head to the Panama Canal and drop something. This is the mm. the issue that that we miss out a lot on is is how the Chinese have structured their 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 commercial and military assets to be resources all the time we did we did this during the cold war I, i'm i know friends who were sailing in the 80s and 70s and they would see soviet vessels and they would have to make reports and you know every every you know u.s british nato for, ship out there was a you know basically open source intelligence if you saw a soviet vessel you had a, a sheet you would fill out you would transmit it and and you'd do it but now that that's pretty rare and, and that's the that's the thing that the chinese are winning right now in mm -hmm. my opinion is is in the open source area well, I think I think this there's, is why there's... you go to the unseen, the unblinking eye that is called artificial intelligence. You've got to construct your intelligence gathering system to include open source right. for all the fishing vessels, and just plug them in and have that as part of your update to all your naval forces every day. What is in your AO? Who does it belong to? And you're going to have to leverage the commercial systems to pull that stuff up and that's that is really difficult for the american military and western militaries they're nowhere near as connected into the commercial systems as the chinese are that was that that was that article by tom sugart not too long ago where he wrote about uh chinese uh, uh ferries being having military capability to yes. launch uh, amphibs and you know if, if you're not watching chinese ferries now all of a sudden you're missing out on on an ability to deploy forces because they can am launch amphibious tractors mm -hmm. and landing craft all of a sudden but yeah, my I mean, point with that is ferries have been being taken up by navies for years you know the yeah. british were using ferries in world war one they were using ferries in world war two in the freaking falklands war the ferries were yep. activated and you know, cruise liners the fact is that people, have, I don't understand the concept of people saying, oh, we're, we're no longer going to take any risk of what ferries are doing. Why? Why are we so shocked that Chinese have this capability? We've had this capability been using ferries for over a century. But uh, I, I think there's, I think the, um, there was some potential solutions in, the, in, in what we've just been talking about, particularly with what, Sal, with what you were talking about with the USVs, it, which kind of, it, it offers a, I guess, a, a two-stage solution because you've got the, the on the one hand you know if you've got lots of enemy missiles coming in usvs are very useful in that regard because you can put some kind of big radar reflector on them to make them look a bit more obvious because you know if you send like two all singing all dancing zumwalt derivatives in and the chinese launch a mass wave of missiles and probably a few zircon knockoffs thrown in there for good measure Okay, well, if two of them get through, and we're talking about big anti-shipping missiles, so two missiles out of 50 get through. So that's a pretty good showing, mm. but there's only two hulls. So one missile per hull, you've now, you're now down your entire surface action group, either sunk or disabled. If you go in with a Zumwalt and three or four constellations, and the same thing happens, well, you've still got three hulls left okay two holes being crippled or taken out is not good but you've still got some of your surface action group there after the attack if you've got a zumwalt and three or four constellations and half a dozen usvs and then the usvs 
maybe you, you probably don't want to go in very big with them maybe have just you know a usb that's carrying a couple of dozen vls cells and that's probably about and a data link and that's about it but when you're and a drone yeah and, a drone. And, and then when but when you're either your date your electronic warfare officer or possibly given the speed of the missiles and maybe your computer system goes you know what two missiles have leaked through our envelope and um, there's not really any chance for any further missiles to engage them at this point then two of your usbs or three of your usbs go hello i'm here look at me look at me i'm big and scary okay a couple of empty usbs got blown up so what surface action group is still mostly there <laughs> um it's it and you know cost wise but that sort of you know two or three constellations maybe four plus a bunch of usbs plus one flagship unit is probably about the same cost wise as two flagship units but one one of them your surface action group is mostly there the other one you, it just isn't um but the the other thing is with the open source data is while it might get a few people complaining about it who really cares what they think but um with if you once you get ocean going usbs working if you have let's say you again using a surface action because it's an easy one if you're sending a surface action group to do some exercises off of say southern japan or the eastern coast of taiwan send out two identical numbers groups of usvs and just have them tweak their ais um, transponders to pretend to be the same ships that are in your surface action group and now it's like, well, good luck, China. Yeah, we, we have all this open source data, except now the open source data says that, you know, USS the Sullivans is here and here and here. Which one are you going to go and have a look at? You've and, got your... and you have that example from the Russians in the Black Sea with mm. Defender and, and, and being able to spoof. I mean, if, if they can spoof it, we can spoof our own all the time. And I agree. You know, I, I think sometimes there's too much attention on the USBs on the autonomous section of it, making mm. them completely remote because if you look at that operating concept they have they would be manned most of the time you would just take the crew off when they're in a forward deployed when there's a chance of action because you, you know that's when you make them expendable that's when you're talking about you know you know hit the blip let, let them show up at like the size of a burke or a tyco and let them draw the action and th at that point they're expendable and you don't want a crew on them at that time no. and and again you know and and in terms of shipbuilding in the united states those vessels can be built fairly easily we're not talking about hitting the main yards we're talking to hitting medium-sized shipyards which in the united states we have a lot of small and medium-sized shipyards that are, are in business that can handle that type of construction you would have to pack the military aspect on a, at a follow-on yard but you could start producing those and again that goes back to that concept are we going to build the you know the king tiger or are we going to build that fleet of shermans and and that this is my opinion is, is the mark is, four panzer the panzer right. four, which, which would have been the, the the most sensible thing for the german armed forces to do because the panzer four had plenty of room for growth they could have upgunned it and just kept building it and it would have been far more sensible than doing the whole Panzer V and tanking Tiger. But sorry, so that's completely off topic. But. Yes, but they're not game-changing cross-domain, cross-service as the <laughs> USBs are and everything. I'm going to use that as my all the time from now on. That's a, I'm, I'm going to get back to the concept of you just plain need more. More small-end numbers that have high, reliable performance. This is, you know, <sighs> The Tomahawks are not stealthy, but they're long range and they're damned reliable. If you up the production rate of them, they're relatively cheap. 
you can fill lots and lots of VLSLs in lots and lots of uh, cheap vessels that are optionally crewed if you want to do strike. And if you make them so that you can launch them from aircraft, which we didn't do because of INF, but we can now, then we have the ability to make our F-35B uh, vertical takeoff and landing planes operating from light carriers to have a strike range that is on the order of 2,000 miles. Hey, suddenly the, the Chinese have a problem in that first island chain that they didn't have before. Now, the other thing I'm going to point out is the Chinese do have counters. There's this thing called the J-18, which is their version of the F-35B that they're working on. Right now, they don't have the jet engines that are both powerful enough and reliable enough to do it. But given the number of helicopter carriers that they are producing, once that puppy comes out, given Chinese rates of production, suddenly the Chinese are going to go maybe from two, three fleet carriers to two, three fleet carriers and six or seven light fleet carriers, and they will own the Western Pacific. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to, to look at that threat, you had better by gum proliferate lots of tomahawks and lots of lorasms right now, because our arthritic procurement system cannot deal with a step change that radical unless we look at it and say, it's going to happen. We need this right now to start it right now, to have it ready in five years when the J-18s start showing up in numbers. And the recent test off the Admiral Gorshkov in the in, in the White Sea, I mean, again, we're seeing the Russians deploy, you know, long range hypersonics on their vessels, you know, small vessels that, that we would consider frigates. They're able to do that very quickly. And, and, and we're just not countering that, you know, and, and you can make the argument, well, it's a small frigate. It's not a big deal. We don't have to worry about it. But again, we won't be the one who starts this. It's somebody else. And you have to react to it. And, and that's what their ability has been to put a lot of assets on small vessels and deploy them, concentrate and hit you when you, you least expect it. And it's called the Gorshkov. You have got to you, you should never discount any sub. <laughs> any ship or frigate or anything named for that admiral he was not an idiot and again his book it's one of those things i i get into trouble sometimes because i always try and give my students a mixed reading list especially for um naval historical affairs and sometimes i'll get accused by people of oh you're just doing that because you're uh, what what's the, the current catchphrase uh, you're de-westernizing it all. You're, you know, you you're de-European or whatever the set of curriculum. And I go, I'm not. I don't care who they are. I put in who's interesting and who's useful to read. Um, there is an Indian admiral who's written some very good stuff more recently, and I always, I, I'm not going to try and pronounce his name because I mangle it terribly. But he's a former see a, a former admiral in the indian navy and he writes some extra history he's basically an indian equivalent of i would argue hill norton who writes his books and the thing is you have these people going around the amount of times especially once you get to, into mahan and Quebec, who need to be studied and need to be thought about because they're the base points for many of the study many of the modern study the amount of times people sort of look at that and they're just going mahan Quebec. And I just think he, that's where it ends. And it doesn't end there. And mm. Gorshkov is one of those ones. He came up with a very sensible strategy for the Soviets in how to really make it very expensive for the NATO partners, NATO allies. And the fact that 
quite often we didn't, uh, you know, they didn't follow through fully on his plan and his ideas. It's not down to him. He had some very smart ideas. And if I was going to put the Chinese approach at anyone's door, I would say it's far more Gorshkov's than anyone else's. If you look at that naval plan, if you look at the structure they're building, that is pure Gorshkov's approach. It is. And yet we're sitting here talking, and whenever you're talking with the US Navy or et cetera, or these Western neighbors, they're talking about Corbett, Mahan, and they're, and they're trying to make the Chinese Navy fit those molds. And yes, those molds are very sensible if you're one, one type. But they're not Gorshkov. Gorshkov is his own branch, his own sort of area and evolution development from a different perspective. And that's what the Chinese are going for. And I think the interesting thing is, is also the Indians are going for a Gorshkov approach, which is go, which is where I see there being some trouble for, for, oh, for China. Because I see, yes, we can't control when other people start it, but neither can they. And their problem is with India. India is doesn't has its own legacies, its own histories, and doesn't like being mucked around with by external powers these days. And they are putting a lot of money into it. And it's interesting to note, both India and China, are, of course, building the carriers and building our own domestic forces. And for the Indians, there is a new focus on the Singapore Straits. And I would be seriously worried if I was the Chinese in thinking that they could use their carrier power to influence India if they wanted to put a push India around, because I have a feeling India would have a few nasty surprises up their sleeves. And that's a whole different ball game for us, because what does America, Britain, Australia, anyone do if China and India actually, because this is what I was watching when they were using rocks and sticks to beat each other senseless in the mountains. I was going, what happens if there ends up being a naval war in South China Sea or Southeast Asia between Indians and the Chinese? What size do we pick? Do we pick size? Do we try and keep out of it? What's going to happen? And who's fought the most uh, naval engagements probably is, is India versus Pakistan, if you have examples yes. with that. And you have yeah. the development of Chinese uh, ports and infrastructure in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, in Pakistan, in the Maldives. I mean, if you're the Indians, this is a concern for you, obviously. Yeah. Because the Chinese they're, are coming to dominate those trade Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think you're right. I, I think we're not talking about that enough either. You know, my argument has always been that, that China is gearing itself not so much to fight the United States. I think that's their worst scenario to do or the European Union, in, in my opinion. It's 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 India. It's Singapore. It's the Philippines. It's Vietnam. It's Taiwan. It's Korea. It's, it's Japan. It's it's you know, if they can keep the U.S. out. That's great. They keep the Europeans out. That's their issue that they tend to to focus on because going against the US is the worst case scenario. It disrupts their trade in a way that they don't want. And you were talking earlier about a trawler being used as a mine to block the Panama Canal or cause issues. But what happens if the same thing happens in the Panama Canal as happens in the Suez Canal or both simultaneously? Container ships have accidents and they're blocked. And some we can all off the top of our head can list points far worse than where the ever given happened. That could have been blocked. And then you've got issues, especially if if you have got a conflict happening and Egypt and Panama are not part of that conflict, they are neutral. Then how do you force them to rapidly do whatever necessary to cut the get those ships out of the way to allow warships through? You can't unless you want to declare war on them. It's it goes, white. Yeah. 
It's why you see China developing in the South Pacific uh, infrastructure and bases there, uh, their agreements with New Zealand, the, the, the uh, building of icebreakers to get through the Northeast Passage north of Russia. If they have to, their agreements with Panama uh, to, to move vessels. I mean, they are they're playing that strategic game again. They're playing that economic game that, unfortunately, we're, we're always in the process of kind of catching up for. And I think they're, they're, they're we're much playing better. playing a capitalist game and they're playing a mechanicalist game. Yep. You're exactly right. They, I mean, they're they're putting their flag down in many ways, and they're doing it very effectively. You know, I I posted a story about the fact that there's more trains moving out of China now to Kaliningrad than ever before because it's it's not because it's going to be efficient. I mean, obviously, moving rail across Eurasia is not efficient, but should supplies get cut off and and should there be right now as there is a slack, they can put high value cargo across there and keep things moving. If they build their pipelines, they build their infrastructure. You know, Belt and Road is not single. It's it it, it it's meant to, to be a backup for each of these things. And and that's what the Chinese are thinking. They're thinking that entire, you know, holistic infrastructure is what they're developing. And and I, I think what we, you know, if you want to counter China, you need to look at how you break that infrastructure. How do you threaten that infrastructure? You know, our presence well, in Afghanistan was seen as a threat to them because of the Central Asian concept us leaving is great for them they, they think that's that's great and i, I agree with drac but, that this is going to be something that's going to suck us back in time and time again and the big thing with afghanistan what do we not do there we were there for 20 years what infrastructure did, yeah what infrastructure did we build i know this is my favorite rant at the moment railways railroads afghanistan that would have been the easiest way to help stabilize that country long term because if you built in that sort of level of infrastructure, you could have elevated the entire economy. You could have built bought a lot of people into it, and you would have made, in less way, it would have interconnected the trade of all the neighbours with them. Because you think about it, neighbours would have been trading with other neighbours, the other side of Afghanistan, by railways going through them. In which case, they'd have been, how do I put this? Very, it would be very critical to them that Afghanistan stayed stable. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think we have been going. We have been talking for about two hours and ten minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think we are probably. Going so I'm going to ask everyone to sum up because I've probably spoken enough. But please sum up what you think. And um, what what are the what is the one lesson you hope the listeners have taken away from this episode of Bill Trumps? Numbers count, and we don't have them. Okay. I think we need to look at. What's the obvious strategy we're trying to propel? And 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 I, I agree. You know, Drac. I, I every time he talks about politicians going off and not understanding things, I just I just you know it's a kindred spirit. I understand that entirely. And you know, I I think one of the things that that we do in 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 all the facets that we do is is try to explain these things in ways that are easier for people to understand. I, I agree. I, I think military, and I, I see this in the commercial side, they do a terrible job of conveying why this is important to the general public. And that's a tough thing to do. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Clark and myself get up in front of students. We have to explain very complicated things sometimes and break them down into concepts that are alien to them, but they have to start to be able to understand them. And I think one of the things that, that we do, and, and one of the things I hope we convey across to everybody, is is not just the historical analogies of why these are important and here are the lessons we can learn from the past, but here are things of why it's important to you. Why is a maritime strategy, why is what China's doing, what the United States is doing, Great Britain's doing, Australia's doing, important in the large 
scheme of things? Why, why are these issues? And, and, and the best thing you can do in preparing for war is prevent war from ever happening, I think. And, and, and sometimes if you, if, you're, if you have a weakness, that is the worst thing in the world because nations will exploit that. They'll see an opportunity, and, and that's where wars tend to happen. They see an advantage. And if there's no advantage, they'll, they'll go a different route. And I think that's the big thing in our rambling rant today. <laughs> Deterrence is often the hardest thing to sell and the hardest thing to explain. Yep. And the amount of times I start off the students with me explaining that using, do you remember the school playground? <laughs> and you remember how, how did you stop people bullying you? Did you move as a group of your friends? Did you make sure you looked big and scary or did you hide? The trouble is for countries, they can't hide. They don't have that option. So your only options are to move with your friends and look scary as a group or look scary as a solo. Now, then I usually start going to my own experience of being the one of the, the only boy in my school who was having to carry a laptop because it was dyslexic. And that can lead to a few interesting scenarios. But the point is, therefore, that's a, I've, I'm, I've got a high value responsibility. I've got something which I'm tied to, I have to protect. My national interests, i.e. or my laptop. Uh, I have to protect that and function that into my concept of what I am dealing with and what I'm doing. And you have to think about that when you're doing deterrence. You have to go through these things. And before anyone of the listeners come in and go, ah, oh, I'm expert in this and that's terrible way to explain it. This is the starting point for the first year of students. It is terrible, but it's about the closest point at which most students will have some basis of experience that they can work from. Yeah, the, the, thing I, the thing I would say is, you know, we, we've made plenty of analogies to history, but the thing is, you know, the end of history was a lie. History <laughs> did not end in the 1990s. History rolls on regardless of what people want to think about it. Like standing there saying, oh, no, history has ended. That's far, everything's broad sunlit uplands from now on is about as effective as standing in front of a steamroller with a sign saying, I don't believe in steamrollers. Um, it's, it's not going to end well for you. But the thing is, you know, there have been plenty of examples of how of this exactly the kind of situation we're in now as regards history, particularly maritime history. And there are examples about how nations have realized what's going on and recovered themselves. And there are examples of how nations have continued to ignore it and ended up being knocked off their perch, sometimes quite violently. The question at this point isn't, is history repeating itself? Because it we know pretty much it is the question is which of the paths of history so far are people going to choose to follow um you do you want to follow the path of ignorance and end up under the wheel of the steamroller or do you want to turn around and go oh okay how do people get out of this before maybe maybe we should start considering doing that there, there have been some tentative movements in that direction over the past few years but not quite enough just yet i think all right Thank you very much to our listeners. Thank you very much to our guests, Trent, Salvatore. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And um, I just say this um, to our listeners. Apparently, there's now roughly a little over 100,000 of you. So um, thank you. We hope we're helpful and take care. Get on your channel and, and add additional <laughs> listeners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thanks, Trent. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch
bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs> <laughs>